Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Welcome to First Baptist Church, where I am so excited to be with you today, able to preach again. And I would ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Um, Let me just prepare you. This is a hard one. Um, Jesus just kind of lets it go. And he's got some uh, challenging and intense things to share with us today. This is a sermon entitled Soul Surgery. Anybody have a surgery recently? Good times, right? Good times. Um, Why do we sometimes need to have surgery? To fix something that is wrong with our bodies. And, And maybe in the context of that surgery, to remove something that does not belong perhaps like a cancerous tumor. And in such a case, surgery, it's a radical, invasive, life-saving measure. And spiritually speaking, there are times, perhaps regularly, when we need soul surgery, removing that from our souls, which does not belong and is toxic and is hindering our spiritual growth. So would you please stand with me as I read the text this morning? It is not long. Oh, but boy, does it pack a punch. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Our Father, these are some of the most uh, provocative words of our Savior. Um, They're shocking in, in many ways. He has something important that he wants to say to us. And so God, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your Word, that you would speak through me, that we would get the message that was so dear to his heart, that we would hear what you have to say, and that we would put it into practice. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our our passage breaks down into four main parts dealing with soul surgery. First of all, there is the diagnosis, the prognosis, the surgery, and then the recovery. And so again, for those of us who have had surgeries of various kinds, we can relate to that. We've been there, done that to a certain degree. But let's look first of all at the diagnosis, because before you can be made well, you first have to know what's wrong. 
And so a good doctor, first of all, has to be able to give a diagnosis of what is wrong. And at this time in Mark's gospel, as we have seen, um, there was something very wrong with the apostles, was there not? And perhaps this morning, by the Holy Spirit, he will reveal perhaps that there are some things very wrong with us as well. So look with me at verse 42. This, this text begins, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, the first thing we have to figure out is, who are the little ones? Who are the little ones that Jesus is speaking about here? Well, to answer that question, um, we need to take a step back and look at the broader context. We need to remember where we've been. You'll remember that right before this, The disciples were guilty of pride that created division, first amongst themselves. Remember, they were all posturing and saying, who is the greatest? But then also division among other believers. They were saying, who's really a part of us? When they they rebuked another believer who was casting out a demon, and they said, you can't do that because you're not one of us. So they were guilty of pride that created division among themselves and also division among other believers. It was certainly not a season where the apostles were at their best. They were prideful. They were arrogant, not in any way exemplifying the unity and the harmony that Jesus desires for his people, the kind of unity and harmony that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And so what did Jesus do to correct them? You'll remember he used a little child. He brought a little child before them to make a point, and the point was this. Hey, you guys, you're being so childish. You're prideful, you're self-seeking, you're divisive, but I'm calling you to be childlike. I'm calling you to be like this little child. I'm calling you to be humble, to be dependent, to be full of faith and void of pretense. And so in answer to that question, who are the little ones, I think based on context, we can safely say that it first refers to literal children, reminding us adults. Now listen carefully, adults, that our words and our actions have profound influence over the kids in our lives. Our words and our actions have profound influence over the kids in our lives. But I also believe there's a second layer, a second dimension of little ones, that it also refers to figurative children, those who are young in the faith. And because they are young in the faith, they have a fragile faith. And once again, just like with literal children, um, the words and actions of adult believers have a profound influence on these little ones, those who are young in the faith, those who have a fragile faith. And so church, have you ever stopped to consider the profound influence that you have over little ones? They're watching you. They're watching you, both the literal and the figurative. They're watching how you talk. They're watching how you worship. They're watching how you serve, your attitude, your actions. And all of these impact these little ones, literal and figurative, far more than you know. You you know, we often lament, do we not, how young people just aren't as interested in church as they used to be. Have you ever said that? Ever thought that? I believe there are many factors contributing to this, but I do wonder how much of that is on us? How much of it is due to the fact that the version 
of Christianity that they see in us is not what they read about in the Scriptures. It's like there's this disconnect, and we wonder, well, why aren't they buying in? Well, perhaps it's because they see a different version of Christianity being lived out in our lives than what they see in the Scriptures. Church, may we take inventory. May we not be guilty of causing these little ones to stumble. And so when Jesus says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, in the context of what has been happening in this portion of Mark's gospel, Jesus is saying that pride that creates division, the sin of the apostles in this season, portrays an ugly version of Christianity which is likely to be a stumbling block for others. A stumbling block that is likely to make them fall. Now, let's dive even a bit deeper into the context here. As I mentioned, just before this, the apostles had confronted some little ones, meaning young believers who were casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the apostles told those little ones, young in the faith, to stop because they were not one of them. How do you think the actions of the apostles impacted those little ones? How did it make them feel to be treated this way by, of all people, the apostles? Ouch. That must have been devastating to them. It must have disillusioned them even. Perhaps it even caused them to stumble. And so, in context, that is the diagnosis. Jesus says, beware of pride that creates division and causes others to stumble. Now we move to the prognosis, and we have to ask the question, whenever, whenever you get a diagnosis, you know, one of the first things we gravitate toward is, how bad is it? How bad is this? What will be the outcome for those who portray, those who are guilty of this ugly, prideful, divisive version of Christianity that causes others to fall? Well, Jesus gives the prognosis in the second half of verse 42, and it's dire. He says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. How's that for a visual, right? In fact, speaking of a visual, I got one right here. Right? But here's the thing, that's bad. But what is Jesus really saying here? He's not saying that's what will happen to them. He's saying it would actually be worse for the person who causes one of these little ones to stumble. He's saying it would be better for them if this happened. No, it's actually worse for the person who causes a little one to stumble. And now what I find encouraging about this is that's how fiercely God loves and cares for and wants to protect the little ones, both literal and figurative. And so what's the message here? Jesus is saying, <laughs> don't mess with my little ones because he is fiercely for them. But tragically, and this is, I think, why Jesus is speaking so directly and severely to his apostles, this is what they were guilty of, messing with God's little ones and causing them to stumble. How? Well, remember, pride that creates division, that's the sin of the apostles in this moment, portrays an ugly version of Christianity, which is likely to be a stumbling block for others. And as we see here, God promises harsh consequences for those who are guilty of this sin. That is the prognosis, and it is dire. It is in many ways a death sentence. 
It is terminal. And so, church, I ask you again, have you ever stopped to consider the profound influence that you have over little ones? Well, such a radical sin with radical consequence, a terrible prognosis, brings us to point number three in the outline, which is the surgery. The surgery. Now, when someone has a very advanced cancer, you don't give them an aspirin and a Band-Aid, right? I mean, the aspirin might help with you know, some pain. The Band-Aid, I don't know that's going to do anything, but you're just not dealing with the issue if you just give them an aspirin or a Band-Aid. Now, you, you have to go deep to the root of the disease and radically treat it Um, There will likely be some surgery involved, again, a drastic invasive treatment to remove the disease, to, to cut it out. And so it is here. So look with me at verse 43, where it gets very graphic. Jesus says, all right, you guys, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What do we do with that? Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, tear out your eye. Is Jesus serious? Well, yes. Jesus is being absolutely serious, but not literal. He's serious. Don't don't mistake that. He's serious, but he's not literal. Now, tragically, throughout church history, there have been some monks and some ascetics who have actually taken this literally, and they've maimed themselves. They've they've gouged out their eyes, cut off their hands, cut off their feet, um, only to find out that, oh, that's not really what Jesus meant, and also to discover that, you know what, you can cut off your hand, your foot, your eye, and the problem is much deeper, isn't it? It's in the heart. Instead, Jesus is using hyperbole to communicate just how seriously we are to deal with the sin in our lives. Hyperbole is simply a figure of speech. It's an overstatement. We might even say an exaggeration to make a point. And the point here is that we are to deal ruthlessly with our sin. That's what Jesus is saying. And in this case, the particular sin that causes little ones to stumble. You know, he mentions these three body parts. He mentions the hand, which refers to what we do. He mentions the foot, which has to do with where we go. He mentions the eye, which is what we see. And so collectively, these body parts refer to the totality of our being in action. And the message of Jesus is simply this. True followers of Jesus will not make peace with their sin. Rather, they will make war with it. Let me say it again. True followers of Jesus will not make peace with their sin. Rather, they will make war with it. They will not be content to try to manage their sin. Rather, they will be intent to crucify, to mortify their sin. 
My experience as a pastor and as a human being tells me that many professing believers are more about attempting to manage their sin than crucifying it. And they live lives that reflect that lack of fruit or bad fruit and powerlessness. And we wonder, where's, where's God? Where's the power? Where's the joy? Where's all the fruit of the Spirit? Those things will not be present in our lives to the degree which they are intended if we're attempting to manage sin. Rather than make war with their sin, they attempt to make peace with it. And that is not the way of Jesus. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Who gives us a stern warning about this? He gives us a stern warning when it comes to those who would attempt to manage their sin or to make peace with it or to somehow have both and. I I want Jesus, but I want my sin too. Look at verse 43 again. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. The point that Jesus is making is this. Those not at war with their sin must consider the possibility that they are not true believers and therefore destined for hell. Those not at war with their sin, those who are okay with it, those who are trying to have Jesus and their sin too, those who are trying to have Jesus and the world too, must consider the possibility that they are not true believers and therefore destined for hell. And that that word hell has an interesting etymology, an interesting background. Um, The Hebrew is the Valley of Hinnom which was an actual place on the southwest side of Jerusalem. Perhaps those of you who have taken trips to the Holy Land have been there and seen that, by the way, um, as much as we had talked in the past year or so about, hey, let's take a church trip to the Holy Land. Um, Probably on hold right now, right? Here circled in red, the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place of child sacrifice to the god Moloch. The wicked kings Ahaz and Manasseh, they actually sacrificed their own sons there. And the place was so wretched, so defiled as a place of child sacrifice that it eventually just became the garbage and sewage dump for Jerusalem. And accordingly, it was a place of constant fire, constant burning, as well as worms, maggots in the garbage, in that rubble, in that totally wretched place. So with that history that the Jews would readily identify with, Jesus used the Valley of Hinnom as a picture for what hell is like. The Greek word based on that is Gehenna. Interestingly, the word appears 12 times in the New Testament. Guess how many of those 12 Jesus used it? 11. What does that tell you? Jesus talked a lot about hell. Why? Because he doesn't want us to go there. He's warning us. He's warning the apostles. He's warning, pleading with us. You don't have to go there. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right here in front of you is salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. You can only receive it by faith as you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus alone as the only way, the only truth, and the only life, receiving forgiveness in Him. And when we receive Jesus as Savior, guess what? It's a package deal. We also receive Him as Lord. You can't just like take part of Jesus. I like the Savior part of Jesus, but not so much the Lord part of Jesus because I want to be on the throne of my life. A lot of people trying to do that can't do it. And I think that's part of the warning here when Jesus says, no, when I am Lord, I'm in charge. I set the agenda for your life. I've earned that. I'm your creator. I am your redeemer. You owe everything to me. Therefore, please serve me with gladness and joy and surrender your life to me. So Jesus talked a lot about hell, warning of, us, of its reality and pleading with us to find salvation in Him. And just like the garbage dump of the Valley of Hinnom, Mark 9.48 says it is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, let's see how savvy you are. How many of you are looking in your Bibles and either you're saying, hey, Chad, you skipped verses 44 and through 46. Or others of you are saying, hey, my Bible doesn't have verses 44 and 46. Anybody, did, did that occur to anybody? Thank you, Genesis. Anybody else? Shame on the rest of you. <laughs> yeah, here's the truth. Some of your translations may very well have verses 44 and, through, and 46. Now you're looking back and you're saying, hey, there's a mistake in my Bible. There are no verse 44 and 46. Verses 44 and 46 are a reiteration of what it says in verse 48. What's going on is we have another textual issue here, and the oldest and most reliable of the manuscripts do not have verses 44 and, through, and, and 46. Likely, it is the work of a well-intentioned but misguided scribe who wanted to make sure that we know without a shadow of a doubt how absolutely terrible hell is. And so he wanted to reiterate that. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add this, which was a no-no. And as we've discussed before, should we be alarmed when these textual issues arise and question the um, integrity of our scriptures? I say absolutely not. As we identify these textual issues, they actually give us a greater confidence that the text before us is accurate because as we compare them with more reliable manuscripts, we say, hey, we identified that there's something going on here that was fishy, but we know through manuscript evidence, what the right thing is. And so as we are honest about these questions of textual issues, I think it gives us an even greater confidence in the integrity of our Word of God. Well, what does verse 48 teach us about hell? I think there are three important things that we've got to reiterate because in this day and age, people are not taking this seriously. First of all, I think verse 48 tells us that hell is real. Hell is real. Jesus is not speaking of a figurative place here. He's not talking about a state of mind. Jesus is talking about a literal place, and he does so consistently when he raises the issue. It is a very real place. Second, hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. There is the belief of some that those who are not saved and experience the wrath of God, they'll simply be destroyed. 
put out of their misery. And I think that part of the issue with this is the desire to, to believe in a God who would not allow people to suffer eternally. And so it's kind of a kinder, gentler judgment. It's like, okay, well, I don't like the idea of God having people suffer for eternity, so it'd be better if you just, what they call, annihilate them so that they just cease to exist. That's called annihilationism. And there's quite a few people out there who believe in that, but it's, as I understand the Scriptures, it's wishful thinking. It is not the teaching of verse 48 or the rest of Scripture. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46. Jesus said, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I don't know how you read annihilationism into that particular verse. Rather, it is the teaching that hell is eternal. And third, and by the way, I don't have any great joy in sharing this with you, okay? It's like, woo, hell! Um, It's just, again, in reaction to so many in this day who are trying to read things into this that are gentler and, but we, we don't, do you want to sugarcoat something? In, when you go to the doctor, I'm not doing this well. When you go to the doctor, do you want him to sugarcoat the diagnosis and not really tell you the truth? Or do you want to know what and not really give you the truth? Deal with it. So many in our culture today want to sugarcoat it and not really give you the truth. Um, we need to know the truth, okay? And the truth is, hell is real, hell is eternal, and lastly, hell is miserable. Some people think hell is going to be a big frat house party with their friends. Woohoo! They raised hell on earth, and they're going to raise hell in hell. And that is just not the way it will be according to Jesus. Listen to what he said in Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is no frat house party. This is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The most intense regret you can possibly imagine. So what does verse 48 teach us about hell? Hell is real, it is eternal, and it is miserable. Why does Jesus speak so frequently and graphically about hell again? Because he doesn't want you to go there. He wants you to be in heaven with him for all eternity. And so in this passage, Jesus communicates that we should be urgently and radically dealing with the sin in our lives. And a failure to do so, this is where we have to do some self-inventory, a failure to do so reveals a heart that likely hasn't really been saved. It is, in fact, then on a highway to hell. So after the diagnosis and the prognosis, we must undergo the surgery, but lastly and thankfully, there is the recovery, the good part, where we are restored to wholeness, and spiritually speaking, we are restored to um, communion with God, but also to fruitfulness. And so look with me at verse 49. Um, It's a really interesting couple of verses. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's the theme? (laughs) Salt. Yeah, good. Oh, you guys are so smart. Um, But what what is Jesus talking about? What's with all the salt? And so to truly understand, I think we have to go back to the Old Testament 
for some context and just a little place for me to say, if you ever encounter a preacher that says, hey, you can be unhitched from the Old Testament, run away, okay? Because the Old Testament helps us to understand the significance of the New Testament. It is all God's Word. We need it all. So, to go back to the Old Testament, um, we need to look at the offerings that God prescribed for the Jews. They had five. Um, The burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and then there was a fifth, which was the grain offering. Um, The grain offering, and this is significant in our context here, it was an offering of consecration. Saying, oh, I consecrate myself to God. I surrender myself to God. It symbolized total devotion to God. And then there were some specific instructions given for this offering in Leviticus 2.13. It says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So, I want you to pay special attention to salt of the covenant with your God. Salt symbolized in this context God's enduring faithfulness. How are we to respond to God's enduring faithfulness? With our own salt, our own enduring faithfulness. But how many of you are really good at enduring faithfulness? Uh, yeah, not so, not so great. I need help in being empowered for enduring faithfulness. Left to myself, I am not known for my enduring faithfulness. And so I need help. Who who is available to give me help? The Holy Spirit, which is why I believe it says in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. I believe that fire is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Like salt, the Holy Spirit purifies us so that fire of the Spirit comes and it burns up some of that stuff that doesn't believe there. It brings purity. It also brings preservation. In that culture, salt was important to preserve. Verse 50 then goes on to say, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So in verse 49, the Holy Spirit salts us with fire, purifying us and preserving us. That's His part. Our part in being salty is to be at peace with one another. Which again, if you consider the context of our passage today, it comes full circle to where the apostles had failed. They were all about pride and arrogance and division and who's, we're, we're jockeying for position ourselves and we're bringing division among other believers. But here, Jesus brings it full circle and says, be at peace with one another. But after in, undergoing soul surgery, the diagnosis, the prognosis, the surgery, the recovery, the hope for them and for us is that they and we would then be able to live humble, peaceful, fruitful lives that God intended for them, lives which would not cause others to stumble, rather lives which would enrich and edify others and help them on their spiritual journey. So now, let's let's shift to application. How should we then live? Let's make it personal. And number one, um, my admonition for you this morning is go to the doctor. Go to the doctor. Not your earthly doctor, although maybe you do need to do that, all right? Go to the doctor with a capital D. This is your heavenly doctor. Go to him and get an accurate diagnosis of the condition of your soul. 
Ask Him. Ask the Father. Father, what's going on in my heart? The apostles had some soul cancer. And you may too. So go to the doctor with the words of the psalmist who said in Psalm 139.23, Oh, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? To genuinely fall on our knees before God and authentically and transparently say, search me, God. I want an accurate diagnosis. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me the hard truth of what's going on in my heart. Because remember, before we can be made well, we need an accurate diagnosis. We need to know what is wrong. And I truly believe that if you go to God with this prayer, genuinely, the Holy Spirit will speak to you with clarity if we are willing to go to Him humbly. Next, after you go to the doctor to receive the diagnosis, submit to the scalpel. Submit to the scalpel. And that's going to hurt. Cutting hurts. Even with anesthesia, cutting hurts. Something is being taken away. Because God's scalpel in your heart is likely going to cut some things out of your life that you have held dear. His scalpel may need to go to work on some relationships. Some situations where you are unequally yoked. His scalpel may need to go to work on some friendships, on some stuff, on some addictions, some idols of all different kinds, your comfort, your security. There's a limitless number of things that God's scalpel may need to address in your life and every single one of them is going to momentarily hurt. But I think part of the point of this passage is that that momentary pain is outweighed infinitely by what? healing and freedom and peace and joy, all the things that are on the other side of God's surgery, if you would submit to the scalpel. Momentary pain, or as Jesus warns, perhaps eternal pain. If we submit to the scalpel, we will be set free and be free to experience all that God intends for us to be. Which brings then number three, be salty. And not in the sense of, you know, you ever hear today people say, oh, he's salty. You know, they're like, he's angry. Not like that, but in the sense of being purified. As you are on the, on the other side of that scalpel, and God has done this deep work of surgery to make you holy, whole and holy, purified and preserved by the Holy Spirit. It's been spreading that salty influence, that, that salty influence that does the opposite of causing others to stumble, now you are able to lead others in the way that they should go. We need leaders in the kingdom of God. Man, we got a, a lot of followers and not many leaders. And I think there are way too many people who are called to be leaders who have just been content just to sit in a pew and say, well, I'm just riding it out till Jesus gets back. And as we saw in the text, a key component to being salty is being people who make peace. 
Are you a peacemaker? Now again, peace is not the absence of conflict. And peace is not being nice and appeasing. That's not peace. Peace is speaking the truth in love with grace and with compassion. Are you a peacemaker or are you one who stirs up strife and division and turmoil? So, how should we then live? Go to the doctor, submit to the scalpel, be salty. Let's go to the doctor right now, shall we? I'm going to give you just a a moment in the quiet to go to the doctor, to go to the Holy Spirit, and to pray that prayer of the psalmist, search me, O God. Search me, O God. Would you have the courage to pray that prayer this morning? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What are you hearing? When you pray that prayer, what is the Spirit bringing to mind? Is it a relationship? Is it some stuff? Is it a particular aspect of your lifestyle? Is it a habit or addiction? Is it your desire for comfort and for security? Whatever it is, would you give it to God right this minute and allow his scalpel to go deep? Don't settle for a Band-Aid and an aspirin. That's not going to do it. Would you trust that momentary pain is worth all that is on the other side of the surgery? All the joy, the peace, the freedom that is on the other side of the surgery? Would you trust that momentary pain is worth it? And don't buy into Satan's lie that it's not. Our Father, you spoke these shocking and graphic words to your apostles. May that not be lost on us. These were your people that you said these words to. So passionate are you about wanting us to deal ruthlessly with our sin. Not because you're angry, but because you love us so much and you want us to be free. You want us to be all that we can be. You know what is possible if we would but surrender to the scalpel. So God, I pray that that would be happening in this all over this room, next door, online. God, do this this deep work that we so desperately need. 
This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.